Welcome to the Westside Investors Network, WIN, your community of investing knowledge for growth. This is the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast for real estate professionals by real estate professionals. This show is focused on the next step in your career, investing. Thank you for listening. And please, if you like our content, rate us on your podcast provider. Just a quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are for educational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any shares or securities, make or consider any investments or take any other action. Welcome back to another episode of the Deal Deep Dive segment on the Westside Investors Network podcast. I'm your host, Trent Werner. In this segment, our featured guests will share their unique stories on a specific deal they've invested in. We will dive deep into finding the deal, financing the deal, writing an offer, and the due diligence. Do us a solid and smash that subscribe button, leave us a rating, and share this episode. And now, let's dive deep. Welcome back to the Westside Investors Network podcast. I'm your host, Trent Werner. On today's Deal Deep Dive episode, we are joined by Jordan Sylvester. Jordan is calling in from Canada, and we're going to talk about the current market up in Canada and how it compares to our market here in the U.S., as well as how the interest rate hikes and market shifts have affected his personal portfolio. He's also going to share some experiences that hopefully you can learn from and how this current market shift impacted his portfolio personally. Now let's welcome Jordan Sylvester. All right, we're here for another Deal Deep Dive episode. We're joined by Jordan Sylvester from Canada. we got someone <laughs> that is not in the States today, and I'm super excited to talk with Jordan about some of the market shifts that they're seeing up north and how those relate and compare to what we're seeing here in the States. Before we do that, though, I definitely want Jordan to take some time, share his background. He's definitely experienced when it comes to real estate, investing, all different types of real estate. And I'm excited to have you today, Jordan. For the people that haven't heard from you yet, what's your career been like? I know you're in Canada. And how has your career played out over the 15, 16 years that you've been doing it? Yeah, Trent. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, yeah, started in the business in uh, 2007 as my dad's admin. He was actually been a he was a realtor since '88, uh, so he's been in the business for a bit. I jumped in with him um, in '07. There, got licensed in '08. Uh, took the next uh, 16 years since then as a realtor, and really jumped into investing in 2019 after helping a ton of people invest for the previous 10 years and watching them build their wealth, and realized. You know, I went to a conference and uh, Gary Keller, who's uh, the owner of the, the brokerage I work for, basically said, every great deal that your clients have bought has passed through your hands. And in that moment, I just had that question in the back of my head. So that's kind of how the journey got started in 2019. I had a great deal in front of me and I literally threw it to a few of my other realtor friends and some investors and went, why am I not buying this? And then did. And that's sort of where the investment uh, really started for my personal journey. But again, helping people build wealth for for most of my career has been uh, really quite fun. And and more than selling somebody their perfect dream home, I actually love watching people build that cash flow, build that equity, um, and grow their long-term wealth for their family and their futures. And you're still to this day full-time realtor as well, correct? Correct. Yeah, I was looking to be a bit more part-time in the real estate game and play in the investment game more long-term. And then things changed with the market. And so you adjust to what's currently available and real estate transactions are more profitable currently than trying to flip property in our current market conditions. Not to say you can't do it. It's just the market conditions have changed and you need to adjust to what you can currently do. And for me, with my skills, highest leverage is in is in the real estate transaction right now. And so in, in the States here, we've seen a 
very, I want to say volatile, but very, very hot market over the last four or five years. Well, over the last like 10 years, but uh, you know, four or five years specifically, it has cooled down a little bit. Has the market been, you know, trending the same way in Canada? Yeah. So from about 2015 through through about 2018, we saw the market start to climb, especially in our region and uh, like bigger metropolitan areas like Toronto or Vancouver, of course, they're in their own markets by themselves and the rest of Canada basically plays on its own game. And so for us, we we started into that process. And then by 2018, we saw a bit of a an adjustment where the market actually dipped just for a minute and then it climbed. And from 19, 20, 21 and 22, the market literally basically went up in a straight line. It basically month to month you could see an increase from 4% to 10%, and that could be month over month. It was insane how quickly, and the fastest, of course, right before we hit the peak, we were up 44% basically in the first few months of 2022 before we hit March, and then the thing fell just about as fast as it climbed. And so again, we still see the market as far as hot. Like we're seeing, we, we've been in a stable market, I'd say for about a year after the crash, like the, the market kind of re, restabilized by losing about 30, 35% of its value. Um, and then we stabilized so that we're holding pretty, you know, s- strong in in about a ten percent margin up and down over the last, I would say, year. And right now, the market looks to be turning back on because they are lowering interest rates in our region, which means, again, if you're if you're looking at our fixed rates, actually, sorry, we versus the variable rate, we're seeing that start to come down. So if you're looking at a five year term fix, which is a different thing than you'll see in the states, that number is coming down. But of course, our your Fed, which is your prime rate versus our Bank of Canada rate, which is our prime rate. Those are still haven't moved uh, yet. We just had a call yesterday. They said we're holding it. Our expectations are the earliest they'll drop it is April. Most people are saying it might not be till 2025. I, I tend to be optimistic that the economy in both countries is doing well and there's an election coming in yours. So it's uh, usually, you know, you can look at some things in life and go, I wonder what if you want to stay as uh, in power, what you're going to do to help uh, facilitate that, even though they say the Governments don't specifically have control over those things. They're still an entity of the government. So, yeah, and that's and that's kind of why I wanted to dive into this situation that you guys are seeing up north and we're seeing here because there are some similarities. You know, maybe different numbers, but we've seen that that interest rate hike happen so fast, and it has impacted a lot of markets in the United States. You know, albeit some other markets are are definitely hanging on and doing all right. But one thing that you mentioned is five-year fixed. So in the states, we're used to, we're used to thirty-year fixed, maybe fifteen on some occasions. But can you explain what a five-year fixed is? Yeah. So we we still amortize over very similar terms: fifteen, twenty-five, thirty-year amortization. But our banking system only allows us to generally lock in for a maximum of five years at a specific rate, even on the variable rate. That those are the terms. Now you can get sometimes a ten-year rate. At certain institutions that are all, let's say, your A lenders, B lenders, and and private money can do whatever they want. They don't follow by the same rules a lot of the time. But with them, so what it does is basically you can go one year if you want. You can go two, three, four, five, um, and then you lock in your rate. And then the issue though is, is again, if you bought an eighteen right now, and now you're in twenty twenty, we're in twenty twenty four, so nineteen now, uh, you're going to start to see your renewals. Well, if you had a three percent interest rate then, and now it's going to be six. Right. You don't get the benefit of like you do in the States where you'll just ride out the three and a half or four percent interest rate you still have. You can hold that for as long as you basically need, unless there's a situation. In Canada, you don't get the choice. You're going to get an automatic renewal with the bank. So they're not going to necessarily say you can't continue your mortgage, but you're going to have to make the payment. And if the payment goes up by five, six, seven hundred bucks a month, you know, for a lot of families, like again, as an as an entrepreneur and an investor and, and somebody who can call it go find money. 
in a, it, within the skill set that I've created in my life, not everyone has that same ability to go find five, six, seven hundred dollars more a month to make that payment, especially with the cost of living and inflation already really tampering with the gas prices, with food prices, with all the other things you're looking at. You know, it's tough for families to overcome. And so I think part of what we're going to watch is the government has to do something, at least in Canada. I think in the states too. To I don't like I don't know the answer. Like everyone's like, well, what's the what's the answer to this question? I think the only answer is is you you probably overreacted. So be cautious not to overreact the other way. Like I think if you drop interest rates to four and a half or four percent, like up in Canada, maybe five five and a half, like you know, and for you guys, maybe one percent ahead of us, it probably works out better for everyone. But being at like seven two for you guys and being at like six for us, like these numbers are almost untenable because they let us borrow too much money at the lower rate. It's kind of like what they did when they 100%, 120% financed properties under the Clinton decisions back in the 90s. And then that's what really caused the bubble to burst in that 08 crisis and other things with like the the world then. So again, I've tried to study a bit more about the history of rates and understanding how they move and, and then being cautious though. The governments overreact from my perspective to a circumstance instead of they should have started raising rates and probably the US, maybe Canada as COVID hit. But because of COVID, they didn't want to. But then so we we get through COVID finally, and we've all suffered and been through that mental anguish. And they're like, and now we're going to do this. And most people have a mortgage. Most people have a car payment. Most people have a loan with a bank businesses and all of those places who who use prime as their is their rate right so they're using prime plus 2 or prime even or even prime discounted but still when you raise it by as much as they did it, it puts a strain on all of us to try to survive and it's the middle class that gets smoked and so all of us who are grinding it's not like for the millionaires and billionaires like the guys who have that like don't get me wrong i'm sure it's frustrating for them but it doesn't put as much strain maybe on their families as it does to the the average canadian family or the average american family like we've seen so that's where that 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 five year term can really hurt a Canadian family versus an American family who again can withstand and, and hold out on their rate for as long like they agreed to the payment they can have it for thirty years. We agree to a payment we can have it for two three four five and if you you know banked on the idea rates were going to stay at two percent and now they're at six you're you're in for a for a real hurt so. Yeah, and that's like the first thing when we were talking about this before we even started recording. The first thing that I was thinking of is you have a hot market, values are going up, people are buying and selling houses and property all the time. And when you have these terms starting to come due, rates start getting raised, mixed with those terms renewing or, or you know, people looking for fresh loans, and that drives the prices down. Now you have these people that it's kind of snowballing in an inverse way where the values are coming down and rates are going up. So it's getting more expensive to own those properties uh, and the value is not supporting that. So I'm assuming that's kind of what you guys saw. Cause I know you said values decrease pretty significantly in a short amount of time. And that, you know, in my head, that's that snowball that caused that. Is that right? Yeah, we, we, we reached 732,000 as our average for Windsor Essex. And so that's, that's the market of course I play in and we dropped all the way down to somewhere. Some will say 485, some will say 515, but it was in that, you know, Call it, uh, you know, thirty uh, thirty thousand dollar window of of fall. So when you, when I say we lost a third of the market basically overnight, we that that price adjustment hit bottom probably by mid August. So that would mean it fell starting in April, and we dropped seven, ten, twelve, fourteen. Like it was insane the adjusted market drops that we saw, and then we finally sort of hit ground somewhere between August and in October where we found that 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 ground and then like I said then we basically hit the 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 buoyancy point we I finished the year right around that 515 mark 
We went up to 602 in the spring market, but realistically, we're probably holding right around that five, 530 to 550 mark. And that's where we are right now. We're in the same kind of um, hold, but we lost also like as a realtor, we lost like 45% of the sales. So we went from doing almost 700 homes a month to as low as 250 in December, but more close to about 325 to 375 on an average month. So as a, as a real estate agent in the market, like there's just a lot less available product for sale, a lot of, uh, and people wanting to get out of their product, but for prices that no longer are real. And so, so much of the market, people are like, oh, there's seven, you know, we went from 300 homes on the market to 1300 homes on the market. But of those 1300, I always told people at least half of them aren't real. Like those aren't real values because people just, you know, myself included, the benefit was I was willing to take the losses, but a lot of guys in, in the flip business we're just trying to hope that they could hold on or get a, you know, a Toronto guy to come in and pay them this crazy price because Toronto is basically double our market down here. So for Toronto, when they come and look at the discount prices in Windsor four hours away, they're like, oh, yeah. So their, their theory is, is they'll, they'll be dumb enough to pay an extra like hundred grand than the current market value would predict. And sometimes, hey, sometimes it happens. But most of the time, that is a very unusual thing. So we saw a lot of the market really there. And then people are like, well, where's all the opportunity? Well, the issue is until the banks really control the asset, the people can't just say to the bank, hey, I am not going to pay you 150 grand and sell the property, right? So a lot of them will be going towards what we have up here is power of sale versus repossessions in the US. But there, there is a, a difference on that factor. So it's interesting to watch. I think hopefully the rates will come down enough that we avoid a lot of it. And most of the harm for someone like myself on the variable rates, most of the harm for a lot of the people on um, adjustable has already been felt. So we've seen a lot of that stuff either shake itself out or already go the way of uh, bankruptcy or however you want to perceive that information. And so there's still a chance that, you know, we hit June this year, which will be another, that's a huge time where everyone closes their properties and gets their mortgages. That's the same time as renewal. So there's a lot of opportunity to see as an investor in this market, where the market might be trending and the opportunities that will be presented by the, by the situations. Right. And so in those moments, you're, you're, you do your best to help your clients, but at the same time, there's circumstances if they're going to give it to the bank or or let it go for a price that makes sense so that they can get themselves at least stable in their world again, right? And the hard part is then you got to go rent and rents are insane. So it's it's like a lose-lose situation. They always talk about, uh, I love the government's thing. We want affordable housing. It's like, then stop making it unaffordable for us as investors and builders and contractors to do our job so that we can provide better value to the people who want to rent. We're not like, one of the things I think people forget is I don't consider myself greedy. I want 250 bucks a month cash flow from a unit, maybe 200. Like it doesn't need to be insane for me to buy it per unit. And so, but when you make it impossible for me to cash flow without like interest rates as they are, how on earth am I supposed to, as an investor, say this is a good place to put my money? And then I'm going to stop. You know, I, I always say like they 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 make it so it's almost impossible to create good product because we have a, Windsor's an old city. We have we have properties that are 100 years old and more. And so we're, we as investors go and we renovate them. We bring them up to close to code as we can within the structure that exists. And they basically give us a hard time the whole time we're going through it. And it's like, well, you're not doing it. You're not creating affordable homes for people. You're not giving you know these, these neighborhoods that need the gentrification. You're not giving these opportunities to come in and, and help these people out. So if, you're, if the government's not going to do it and, the, and they're expecting us, the middle class or the, the, the investors to do it, that's great. And we're happy to do it. So we like to make money. but why are you fighting us? Like, I thought the idea was, was we were in this, we're going to work together to create affordable housing. And I, and I think if, as a landlord, you're going to gouge your people because you can, I think that's a, you know, you should check yourself a little, you, you don't need to gouge human beings to make a good living in this life. I think it's reciprocity. 
And so you you find that balance between those two things. And again, we have way more regulation in Canada than you guys do in the States. Our, our tenants have a lot of, um, call it authority compared to you guys where we can't raise rents easily. We can't even kick tenants out. It can take us up to six to eight months to get rid of tenants up here. There's all kinds of different rules and regs, but I just wish we could work with the government and and come to a resolution about how we can actually create affordable living, not only for homeowners, but also for 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 tenants and 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 the average person in this world. So well, Jordan, I don't know how familiar you are with Portland, Oregon, but I'm in Portland, Oregon, and we happen to have very strict landlord tenant laws that oh, okay. favor the tenants. And everything you just said sounded very close to home. <laughs> okay. Um, so for, we have Michigan. We so we, we border Detroit, right? And I know in there and in, in over there, they play by way, way looser rules, more like our oh, yeah. commercial rules. So in commercial real estate up here, yeah, the the landlord has control. But as a as a and again, they they at Portland, Oregon, it doesn't surprise me that they would have the same kind of stuff. And, and when you look at different, each state has their own rules, just like Ontario has its own as a province, right? And that's who we fall under. But again, I find it's interesting because a lot of states, when you look at them, do have a lot of freedom for the investor. And again, I don't know enough about each and every state individually. I just know, again, being being within 10 minutes of getting into Detroit, Michigan there, I do tend to talk to a lot of investors who who cross border for different conferences and conversations. So, Yeah, no, and and I'd say the majority of states still are, you know, they provide the resources and the tools for investors to provide an affordable housing or affordable housing to tenants that are are looking for it. But like you like you mentioned, the when you have all this regulation, all these fees, higher fees for remodels, construction, all that fun stuff, plus it takes forever to get those approvals from the city or the municipalities. That's what we deal with here. And you know, we have rent caps and and it's hard to evict tenants if we want to uh, or if we need to. And all those things, even though we do have rent caps, all of those different fees and costs and, and delays actually drive the rent prices up more, more often than not in markets like ours, uh, just because that doesn't really equate to affordable housing, like you said. So that's my little, my little tidbit on the Portland market. Uh, Jordan, I was going to ask you, what are rents doing in your market? Are they going up, down, sideways? And and how is that correlated with, obviously rates are have gone up, are rents following? Yeah, so basically what's happened, and I've had to help negotiate a few of these, which is where let's say the, the, the landlord was on a variable. Now they're like, either I have to sell the house, right? So you're going to probably get kicked out or we got to renegotiate rents. And so they, it's not legal under the tenant landlord act, right? There's only a two and a half percent increase allowable, but in a scenario where the, the, the basically we're, we're, we're like, it sounds bad, but like the, the literally I still have a lady who's paying $400 a month for her tenant to live there. And it would have been $800 a month if they didn't renegotiate. So there's no way that was going to be sustainable long-term due to the adjusted rate. So again, what we're seeing is, is a place that you used to be able to rent for $800 a month is $2,200 now. Now that's going back to 2015 to today. So you're almost 10 years, but that's, that's a thousand, that's a, that's a huge change. And so right now, like I said, but those properties sell for about 350 for, for and you'll get between, you know, two and 2,200 a month out of those. Whereas before you're picking those up for like 80, 90, and then you're renting them out for about eight, 900 bucks a month. So Again, the issue now is, is as an investor, even myself, like every time I have to look at a property, I almost have to do the the in-law conversion, which means you build the in-law suite into the residential neighborhood. So you, you get your ranch that's got a good main level three bed 
that you can re-up either into a nice two-bed unit or even three-bed unit in the basement with the egress windows, with all the, the protocols in place. And then you got to get the dual rent out of it so that you can actually cash flow the thing these days. So you have to, you, the capital investment, I always tell people the issue is, is if you're going to sell it again to the market, what you're going to spend to put that unit in probably isn't going to be 100% refundable to you. But from the cash flow perspective, man, like I put a unit in one of mine, it cost me 67,000 and increase, like I got 1350 a month out of, out of putting it in inclusive. So call it 1100. But if you, if I told you right now, give me, give me 67,000. And if you, you could technically leverage it and I'll give you 1100 bucks a month, almost everyone will do that. And that's why the basement conversions make it somewhat viable. But again, we have all these stipulations and rules. You have to have the right height. You have to have the right windows. You have to like, there's a lot of you know hiccups and things that put a huge amount of cost into sometimes dealing with our cities and municipalities to make those things real. And it's like, guys, I'm not saying we shouldn't have the rules, but let's just make sure we can move really fast. When I say I want to add a unit to this place, that you can do that within, let's say, a two-week window of approval instead of a six-month window of approval, which we run into up here. It's just insane. It's like, how am I supposed to own something, wait on you for six months? Like, let's 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 create a process where we all agree to the terms of what's required for the for the housing. And let's make sure we're just putting in the units, making them safe. And if somebody's six two, they're not going to rent the the units that's only got six foot clearance, right? They'll you you get you know I'm only five ten. I can walk around a lot of basements down here. And when my buddy comes with me, he's six foot four. You know, even in some you know good sized basements that they would allow, he still has to duck all over the place. So those are you know those are my pet peeves about uh, being an investor and why I tend to avoid the city, to be honest. But yeah. well, speaking yeah, I, of being an investor. And, you know, we've already talked about the market shifts that have happened and are currently happening up in uh, Canada. I want to hear about your experience with the, you know, current and, and recent past market and how that has affected some of your portfolio over that time period, you know, say from 2018 to now. Uh, what have you experienced personally? Yeah, so I bought a few properties, one in 2019, did a few, you know, wholesale deals or different. Uh, liquidation type deals along the way there too, and then picked up another duplex, which I turned into a triplex with the third in-law suite. You know, so those prop th those properties all worked well. They all refied well. Everything was going smooth. And then uh, I I partnered up. I think I did seven in that. Uh, let's say from 2019 to 2021. So at the end of 2021, I finalized one of my bigger projects. Finally finished that up, and then I I grabbed one of my buddies who was doing fairly like pretty much the same thing I was, and we decided to combine our resources, and so then we bought seven. So we bought seven between February 27th and April 15th of 2022, and the market was still like when we were buying them, we were looking at we we pushed the 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 envelope on how long we were going to hold on to them before closing, right? So we had three close right at the end of June. And so I had two close in March. So those ones were were bought and closed in 30 days. But then the three of them closed in June. But by the time June showed up, each of those properties wasn't worth what we had originally even paid for them by then. And we we didn't make the decision like we probably should have to wholesale them as soon as the market shifted. Again, being a business with my partner, I might have done that if I was on my own, just liquidated to stay stable. But again, we didn't know where the floor was. And we didn't realize it was going to be that much of a... The government had told us at the start of 2020. Two, that they were going to raise interest rates from from two and a half percent to three and a half percent, right? Seems fine. Okay, so we understand the market's going to cool a bit. We're going to see some adjustments, but what they did was they raised the market from two and a half percent to six and a half percent, and then all the way up to seven point two within the following first quarter of the next year. So it really changed the entire dynamic, and they did it at such a speed that I couldn't even really adjust to understand how to 
what's the right word? Like, how do I take my model that I have in front of me and throw it out the door and now try to figure out this new model? Because all of the information I had about hold, rent, you know, all of all of the, the resale, the refi, all of the numbers, every single one of them, no matter I'd put in a 23% follow-up, meaning I could see the market drop almost 23% before I could get hurt. And now here's a word from our sponsor. Get things done while you're on the move. Learn more about working with a virtual assistant through offsite professionals. It's a great way to get all the things done that you need to get done. Have freedom in your time and streamline your life by automating your business. Stop spending time on the tasks that you can delegate and start spending more time on your superpower. Call us today at 503-446-3177 or visit our website at offsiteprofessionals.com. Uptown Syndication is now offering a syndication coaching program for you to take your real estate portfolio to the next level. This is your opportunity to have experienced syndicators, AJ and Chris Shepard, coach you on your way to controlling your real estate investing future. Our coaching program will provide you with the tools and framework needed to begin syndicating real estate in your target market. Go to uptownsyndication.com today to learn more. It had to drop 30 something percent. And so again, I'm very grateful that I've mitigated my losses. I'm very grateful that I learned to really build in some good mitigations, but I still, I like I said to you earlier, like, my hubris was pretty powerful thinking, all right, I've got this. There's no way I can lose. I'm in this spot. It's basically, I'm playing with house money. There's, there's no way I can lose. And then, you know, as life does to you at times and circumstances, the, hum- <laughs> the, the stumbling block shows up and you get humbled real quick. And then you have to work through that personally. And as an investor, whether it's your first deal and you made mistakes, I always tell people when you're getting into your first deal, expect that you're going to make a bunch of mistakes and it's good. Learn from them learn how to be more profitable next time. Just try to make sure you don't do anything that cripples you. And then I took my, I took that advice, threw it out the window and then did something where I leveraged well beyond what I, I didn't consider it beyond my risk tolerance till, till it cleared what it did. And so we, like I said, those three properties we closed in June and the two we closed in March, both, all five of them, one of them broke even and all in the other four all lost money. And then we had two that we were able to, we wholesaled one, made a little bit of money on it. And then we were able to actually close on one do his minor renovation to it. But because of its low end price range, it was able to actually sell and make us about 50, 60 grand. So it offset the other three or four that we lost about 80, 90 grand on. So in, in, as an investor, I would tell you the thing to remember is, is yes, maybe you can move at speed, but you might still want to clarify and verify whether you should. <laughs> and everyone I was talking to at the time didn't think it was a bad idea. They, some of them are like, it takes some balls to do what you're doing. And it did. Like it, 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 I was definitely pushing the limits with my business partner to say, okay, well, you did two, I can do two. So why don't we do seven? And the mm-hmm. only mistake we made was timing. And all the only grace we do have in it though, and I'll tell you this, it was if we had gotten through that and made the money, there's no way we don't go bigger. And maybe we can't withstand, like we've withstood the losses of this experience, but we might've not withstood if it took a year longer for this to happen, because it was going to happen. Right. And, and so when it did, we could have been into it for millions in losses instead of, you know, in the hundreds of thousands, like quarter million dollars, right? Like that number sounds big. If you're an investor, you know, that's, that's setting yourself back a few years. If you're, if you're flipping and you're making, you know, 30 to 40, 50 grand to flip, well, you got to go, you know, that's, that's part of the game. So I would say, I, I, I said it to you, I got my PhD in investing. I learned to operate much more humbly, be much more cautious, but not, not to say, don't pull a trigger. Don't take the risk, right? Like, the worst thing you can do is be like, well, this was dumb. I'm never doing it again. It's the people who get the one bad tenant and then never rent again because they're like, I don't want to deal with tenants. It's like hire a good management company, 
and then walk away from it. But I, like, don't not build your life around the things that seem to work to make a lot of people wealthy because of one bad experience, because of one bad moment. And I, and I'll admit this moment really made me ask some really good questions for about six months before I could screw my head back on straight about dealing with the reality, right? Because everything had just changed so fast. And in so many ways, it was hard because even my personal wealth, all the properties I did own, they lost all their value too, right? Because the, the market drops, my primary residence and all the protections per se that I had financially to make sure that if I did take on a loss, I had the money all went away almost at the same time. So one thing that we've seen here in you know, the residential space and the commercial space. So the entire real estate market that we've seen because of situations like you're talking about, you know, we've, we've heard all the stories of people getting burned, you know, syndication groups getting foreclosed on for their entire portfolios, all those things. And so now I feel like buyers are a more cautious and, and underwriting deals very conservatively, but the sellers, and I don't know if we've talked about it since we talked about it a little bit beforehand, the sellers aren't aren't realistic with their values, right? Like the market has shifted. A lot of sellers or property owners think that their property is still worth 700 when in reality it's worth 500. And, mm -hmm. you know, you have these buyers that are underwriting at 500, sellers want seven. And so there's just not as many deals trading, you know, it, interest rates have impacted it and all that other stuff too. But, you know, if, if there's still deals listed and people are still looking at them, I feel like the buyers and sellers are so far apart that deals just aren't trading. Is that, I mean, is that what's happening up in Canada too? Yeah, that was the early part of the conversation where we went from 300 active properties in our current market yeah. to 1300. And yeah. how many of the 1300 are just not real? Like they're just, don't get me wrong. I have a property listed right now that's at a price. I get it. It's high, but it cash flows like a king. So I don't care if I keep it. I am liquidating, of course, to deal with my world. And the only reason I would liquidate an asset is to deal with the fact that I have people's money leveraged and I need to make things right with people, um, not institutions. If I would do this again, I will never leverage money like I did. I will change that. I will do institutional lending. That way, if ever I'm in this spot again, I can just go to the institution and say, this is now your problem because they, they have that same attitude towards me because if things go bad for them, they're not going to ask a second question. When you're dealing with human beings, for me personally, it's something I have to manage a little bit differently because I do have investors that way. But when you're looking at the market and you're looking at the buyer and seller situation, exactly. I haven't bought, not because I haven't made offers. So I've made offers to people, but again, I'm insulating. Like there's no, the market's not increasing. So I have to automatically put in and I put in a 10% decrease. So my, whatever the market value is, and I'll tell you upfront, I'm going to drop it by that plus other associated fees. So I'll be somewhere, depending on the, the the price of the project and the upside of the project, between 15 and 25% below market value. And for a lot of people, that doesn't make sense. And that's okay. I have the game of real estate that I can transact in and say, hey, I can listen and sell it. And I, I'm honest with the people about it. As an investor with my license, I do have certain limitations on what I can and can't do because I have an obligation as a fiduciary in this business differently than other investors who can go door knock and can go offer prices to people and don't have to disclose the real value, don't have to give you know the, the extra level of care that I do due to my licensing. And that's, I've looked at it when I was doing it before, it's, it's just being honest. And most people choose what's most convenient for their life. And right now, a lot of people are just trying to survive before people be like, yeah, no, I'll take this because it's guaranteed money. Then I can go do what I want to do. And I don't want to deal with any of the other headaches. So we, because we offer the simplicity, we offer the flexibility, we, like, the, the difference between the real estate market and me is that I can give you terms that they can't. Like I can't go to the market and say, we can close anytime. We can let you rent it back from us for three months after. Like 
most people buying, unless they're investors, right? Myself can't give those types of terms. So we have all these things that when we are asking for our discounts, at least I am, I'm usually trading it with some piece of value that they couldn't get from the actual market. And so then they decide whether or not that piece of value is valuable enough to give me the discounts I require. And like I said before, when I built in the 23% fallout rate, that was based in that discount, meaning the market value from when I was buying them to where they were projected and the window, I was always buying the low end of the window and taking the discount from the low end. So the high end, right? And I was using the median as that 23% fallout. So I was usually buying about 15% honestly below market. And so then I would turn around and as a realtor, I can insulate other costs because of course, realtors have the ability to do that because I don't need a lawyer. Uh, We operate with lawyers up here for closings, but you guys use, um, oh, come on. Title and escrow. Title title and escrow. We don't do that. We use lawyers in most of Canada. So again, it's just a different measure. But like you said, buyers and sellers are nowhere near each other in a lot of the situations. And me as an investor, like it's harder to tell people because before everyone had a bunch of money. It felt like most people were doing so well that they didn't mind helping the investor because the investor was going to go in and their, their property wasn't turnkey, like go to market. These properties you're buying are the ones that need, you know, 50, 60 grand to get them all the way done. And then you can make the 50, 60 grand on the flip side of them, right? Like you're not able to go into something pristine usually and be like, oh, I'm going to buy this at a huge, massive discount. That doesn't usually work. So the the thing is though, most of those people who are who who don't have the same equity position to go back to the market and buy because the interest rates are so high before, these people could sell their property to me that they'd picked up for 80, 90 grand, sell it to me for 250 which maybe it was worth 300 at the time. And, and so then they'd sell it to me for the 250 mark. I could put the money in and it was worth four or 450 when I was done. And then they could take that extra 200 grand they had and go buy their next property that they really wanted to get into because they had so much for the down payment. They, the appraisals were all there. Their, the lending was there. So they would be on like an $800 a month payment, similar to when they first started out with the $80,000 house, because at that time, interest rates were six, 7%, right? Like all of these things worked for the benefit of both parties and everyone was winning in today's market. It's so hard because equity was wiped out from people. They're just like saying, but my house was worth 700 and now it's worth five. That's not fair. And you're like, I get it. <laughs> Believe me. <laughs> I, I, when you say it's not fair, that is, a, that is a response in my brain that goes, I like, this just doesn't feel fair. And, and that's again, back to affordability. Like in the old market, as bad as it was, and some of its affordability issues, at least there was, there was money moving and it felt like the economy and the people all had this call it like pseudo joy or, or this happiness about these transactions and and all of the things. And right now everyone's just like, how do I survive? Like, how do I get through the next six months? How am I going to make these payments? Like one of my friends yesterday just said like their family just got a, their, their car broke down. They had to go get a new car and they're, they're basically, it finally broke their mind. They're like, how, how, how for, I have to go get a 400, $500 payment at, at the thing so I can get a vehicle that's good for my family. And yet I can barely afford to put food on the table and pay my mortgage. It's just, it is just a different world. And I think to be honest, that's okay. We just need to learn how to respond to the different world. How we do we as investors, how do we as service providers, whatever it is you do in this life, how do you support the people around you and bring the value you need to, to get to the result as an investor you want to. And that's why I said, for me, I went back to transactional real estate because it's my highest level of help in the current circumstance. And there's just not the same margins on a lot of the flips. I still offer the service, like I'll buy your house and I tell them, but for them before when they had 250 grand worth of equity. And now they have 70 grand worth of equity. It's a lot harder to get them to give up 50 of it to me because they only now have 20 and they can't do anything with the 20. And it's like, I get it. So I don't like, that doesn't make sense for either party. Like my objective is to make sure that as a realtor, as an investor, I get them to refer friends to me. I get people to say, Hey, this is how he helped me. Not how he 
took advantage of, right? Like there's a, there's a fine line between those two things. And, and again, I think depending on the business model you run, and I, I don't judge other people for where they're at. Like I said, I have to follow a certain set of rules due to my licensing. I know whatever for how other people run their businesses. It's just how I do. So again, communicating with buyers and sellers, buyers are still concerned about their monthly payments when they, it's, it's more expensive right now to buy than it is to rent. That's the only thing I'll tell you in our market. If you want to go rent a nice raised ranch, you know, three bed up with the full finished basement, you're probably right around three grand. If you're going to buy it, you're about $650,000, which means you're going to have a half a million dollar loan at 6%. Well, there's, there's $30,000 just in interest payments alone, right? So you're basically, and then you have your principal and other things. So all of a sudden now you own this thing, but you're, you're not really getting ahead, right? You're, you're stuck in this weird spot. So as a, as a, I always say, being an equity long-term will always be the play, but right now it's hard to convince somebody that before you could buy a house and yeah, you took on the risk of repairs and other things because now you own it to these, to these young people and getting banks to actually lend to young people, man. It's such a pain in the rear end to like, I have an 18 year old son in March, he'll be 18. And it's like, okay, so how do we get him into the position to get into investing and buying real estate? And it's like, how much money does he have to go earn for that to be viable to pick up even a, a two hundred or $300,000 house that he could rent out and, you know, make some cash flow, and even if he's not going to live in it, you know? It's hard in, in the market to have conversations with the young people. And you you hear it, the millennials and the Gen Z, how are we ever going to, well, here's the thing. I tell people all the time, buy something you won't live in and live in your parents' basement still. It's that simple. Find something you can cash flow. The bank will lend to you. Don't care where it is. Don't care where what state it's in, what country it's in, to be absolutely honest, to some extent, as long as you understand you have good property managers and people, but get yourself into a position where you get into equity. Because once you're in equity, then you get the benefits of in 10 years, we all know this simple truth. The real estate market will not be down in 10, might be down in two, but not down in 10. It just doesn't happen, right? The dollar devalues too quickly for that to be true. Yeah. And I, I want to I stop and talk about, I've never heard it phrased this way, but you mentioned, you know, the market seemed joyous because of the situation that sellers were in, buyers were able to get affordable, you know, loans and, and they might've been higher, but the rates were good. The sellers then had more equity and, and gains that they could roll into a new property. I loved how you said everyone was joyous. And that's, <laughs> I'm a realtor too. I'm licensed in Oregon and Washington. And that's how I felt. You know, it just made sense for everyone. Uh, if someone was an investor, they could still rent those properties out and, and cash flow and everything was good. And then we had this shift and it's kind of, it's gotten a lot tighter, a lot harder to pencil to, to get loans for people that may have qualified in the past, but can't qualify now. And, and I really liked what you said about the young, the younger generations. I'm a millennial myself. And, you know, we got, we got into the market early in our, in our lives, my wife and I. And so we've been gracious and grateful that we have, you know, portfolio and everything now, but trying to buy new properties in our market is almost impossible. You know, and like you said, it's, I've started looking out of state, I haven't gone out of the country yet, except for Puerto Rico, <laughs> but that's just because I want a house in Puerto Rico. Um, but go. we have we've had to go and look out of state because in our current market, the only way a deal pencils if you have is if you have a ton of cash that you can put down, get that you know get that payment below. Uh, you know you have to put like 50 percent down just to get something to pencil. But then the prices here, you know, you're looking to three four hundred grand to put down, which a lot of people don't have. So it's it's almost impossible to to get someone into a property unless they have just a bunch of cash lying around that they're ready to use. Yeah, we we're seeing cash like 
we went from from leverage king to cash kings, right? So mm-hmm. the old market was a leverage king, meaning that we were just using the bank's money, and and everyone was, and and I think like the bank was fine with it. Like the the bank was agreeable to in the states three three and a half percent for you guys, and we were as low as two percent and everything. And the the banking industry didn't seem to be upset about it. Like nobody. I didn't hear RBC, our big bank up here, or, or BMO, or any of these other ones really complaining about their, like you see them making $350 million a quarter. Like yeah. nobody seemed to be hurting. And then it's it, it it's just like one day they went, all right, that's that's enough. You guys, you guys at the banks who are who seem to be happy, you guys in the in the in the middle class who seem to be happy, let's just wipe you all out. Let's just like the banks are going to survive up here just fine because we we have very very strict rules again part of that 5 year fixed i'm assuming has something to do with how they can control the banking situation we have power of sale versus bank repo uh which is slightly different which means our banks have to try to get maximum value for a property they're not allowed to just throw them out for what the loan value is so what their debt is on them those are some of the minor adjustments each state i guess is different too so i want to be careful like i just know that the some of these d- differences in the countries and so what's so interesting Again, when you talk about like the 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 happiness, man, like I I lost my joy for a bit. Like I just I felt like I had failed. I felt like everything in my world was over because I had built everything with my family and I'd done so much to try to give them the life that I had hoped to like to provide. And then one day it feels like it's all gone. And and it and it happens so fast. Like you spend 15, 20 years of your life building towards something and then in a moment. Now what I've learned from it again. The greatest thing I've learned is a, my kids and my wife don't really care about all of the things. Like, yes, they like them. Don't get me wrong, and they they're happy, but they're they would much prefer their dad to be happy than the things that I can provide. Which was a very uh, very humbling thing to realize that they care more about me than what I provide. Because as a provider, that's where I find my value. Right? That's where as a as a person, I'm like I'm successful because of how I can provide for my family. Now, today, I recognize I'm successful because I have kids and a wife who love me no matter what the circumstance I put us in. Cuz <laughs> cuz as I say to my wife like, yeah, you still happy you hit your, you know, after after a year where, where we lost most of our personal wealth and we we put ourselves back from after spending a lot of years struggling and going through all the hard times. That's why I have empathy for people who are, you know, I had to borrow money as a young realtor, right? I, you know, and and to survive at times, I'd have to tap somebody on the shoulder and say, "Hey, I need five hundred bucks so I can pay for groceries and you know pay my electrical bill. I can get you back as soon as this closing comes through." Right? Like, I've been through those moments in life to get to the point where no money was no longer something I had to look over my shoulder for, and to kind of take that massive step back. And not that I'm and and I'll say this: it's funny because I don't look at money the same way anymore either. Like money used to be something I desired. It's a resource like food that we need in life for the benefit of our relationships. The way we're going to make it, the way I made it through everything I've been through is I have amazing relationships in my real estate business. I have amazing relationships within my family and in my friends group. And even with these investors who I can't give all their money back, the fact that I humbled myself, went to them and said, hey guys, here's the reality. I, I'm going to make it right. I don't know how or when, like I don't have all the answers. I want to be honest about that, but I'm going to figure it out. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take these steps to do that, are you okay with this is, is the plan? Because otherwise, if you're not, and I get it, like this is not a threat, it's just the truth. I'm underwater and I won't, I won't survive. And they all came alongside me and went, okay, why? Because I went to them. Like I, I, I've learned that when you just talk to human beings and you actually humble yourself and say, I made a huge mistake. I didn't realize, like I didn't do it with any malicious intent. I didn't do it like I was trying to 
you know, I didn't realize what I did and I'm honest about it. People seem to have this great yeah, mercy would be the right word on me, which I don't feel I even did really deserve, but it, it's nice that they do it. And, and one of the character things they say, well, you would do it for me. And I said, well, yeah, but that doesn't like, just because I would do it. Like if you talk to some of my friends, like you do, you do things that you shouldn't. And I'm like, yeah, but that's because in my nature, I partner with people I can shake a hand with. And I'm so grateful that that's one of the things I built my business on and not on all of these other people who are more than happy to give me their money, but probably would not have been nearly as happy to give me the grace, right? Like, yeah. I, I, again, from the emotional side of things, man, it, it was like for all of you investors who got hurt, for all of you who took massive steps back and are dealing with the mental realities, don't get me wrong, you got to go through it. But remember, failure is only failure if you don't learn. If it is learning, it's worth everything because failure in life is the way it teaches us. We can't learn if we don't try. So please keep trying, keep failing forward, keep moving down that road. So sorry, a little bit of a preacher in me at times. <laughs> you know, I, and I will, I will echo what you just said. I have personal experience. My, I thought I was untouchable. You know, I've done a couple of real estate investments and I was like, you know, I'm going to go invest in a business. And uh, a buddy of mine was starting it and I didn't really look into it. I just kind of believed in him. That was the quickest 50 grand I've ever lost, you know, Six months, COVID hit, business couldn't open, poof, see up. And yeah, I was like, all right, well, I'm going to stick to real estate because I know it and definitely be more cautious when I'm uh, investing in things. So I agree with what you're saying. You know, if you, and I learned from it, right? I failed forward and learned to do things differently next time. And it's a very valuable and sometimes costly lesson, but mm -hmm. that's the only way you can handle it and go up from there. Yeah. Um, Jordan? Did we miss talking about anything today that you wanted to touch on during our conversation? Nah, man, I think we covered a lot. Like, I know we didn't go as deep into some of the, the intricacies, but I think we just talked more about realities, which in this current environment, guys, I think it's very important. Like I said a minute ago, just, just keep your eyes focused on the opportunity and, and be cautious. It's not to say be fearful. That's, diff that's a different word. Be cautious of being fearful. But be, 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 be mindful and listen to really smart people, not just yourself in the mirror. Like talk to people. If you, if, here's the thing I've learned. I like to do things because I like to do them. And the worst thing I can do is not say it out loud to another human being who will, who has authority enough in my life to tell me off. Doesn't mean I'm going to listen to them, but they, if you have to put it out there and you're like, but if I tell them, they're just going to tell me this, maybe you should tell them because then they'll tell you that and it'll actually cause you to reconsider some of the decisions you're making and those things, hey, it does, again, it's not to act in fear, it's to act in intelligence and using the resources of people around you, man, like I'm not that smart. As smart as I know I am in, in, in some arenas and as much as of, of my life I've learned through doing all the dumb things and having to learn the hard lessons, it's so much easier when I just ask the dumb question to a friend and that friend being honest enough with me to say, yeah, I know you're an idiot, <laughs> right? Like, and, and that not to be rude, not, not he's not trying to be mean. He's trying to be honest because he loves me. He cares about me. These are the relational things. So guys in business, in friendships and things, you know, there's business and there's friendships and I'll prioritize friendships because they're the way you get through these, these failures that you turn into learning that you turn into hopefully millions of dollars in the future. Because once you learn some of these hard lessons and you understand them, man, put them to work for you, right? Take those lessons and put them to work. Amen. Jordan, where can people hear more from you, connect with you? So we're across all the social networks. 
but primarily you can go to jordansylvester.com if you want to reach out uh, from the real estate side. You can give me a call at 519-960-0350 if you want to chat. You have life experience, you've got real estate ideas, you got investment opportunity, you got something you're looking at, you want someone to throw it by, you don't have somebody in your life right now that you could have that conversation with. I'm more than happy to have. I like to have cool conversations about different investment opportunities and all I can give you is the best perspective from my experience. And so, and again, if I don't have it, I might know the right guy that does. And so again, those are the best ways to reach out. If you want to, you know, follow on Facebook or, or LinkedIn or YouTube or any of the other channels, we are, we are all over the place these days. And I, I guess the last thing I'll say is I, I give you a follow on Instagram and you're definitely consistent with your content and pumping a lot of content out. So anyone that's wanting to connect with Jordan more, highly recommend giving him a follow on Instagram and all the other social medias as well. Jordan, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your experience. I know it wasn't wasn't the uh, most sunshine and rainbows experience, but I'm glad and, and very appreciative of you sharing what you have gone through recently and how to how to combat that in the future and learn from that. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks for having me, Trent. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast on WIN, your community of investing knowledge for growth. We hope that this episode has increased your knowledge and added value to your path to freedom. If you would, please take a second to rate us so that we can get more great investors to interview. If you or someone that you know wants to be on, please visit westsideinvestors.com and fill out our form to be on the show. Thank you again and enjoy your day.